Ever get a cut and used cotton gauze to wipe it up? Cotton gauze is just cotton gauze, right? Well, not to my next guest. He developed a new cotton fabric that has proven more effective in trauma care and other medical requirements than the traditional ones. In fact, his invention is the first new medical gauze in 50 years. Vince Edwards is a chemist with the Agricultural Research Service and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. He joins me now. Dr. Edwards, good to have you with us. Well, thank you, Tom. Tell us about your work. You don't ordinarily think of the Agricultural Research Service as coming up with medical solutions, but to tell us about your work here. Yes, this started about a quarter of a century ago in the late 90s, and I joined a part of the USDA's Agricultural Research Service in New Orleans, Southern Regional Research Center. And in the mid-90s, following some very fruitful work that was established by several generations of cotton textile chemists, I entered into the Cotton Chemistry Utilization Unit after having a background in pharmaceutical and gene transfer research. And it was at that time that when I entered into the lab, there was an open-mindedness about a scientist applying themselves, as is there still is today, to creative ideas. And my new boss then said, here's your lab, go to it. And first impulse was to take cotton and apply wound healing concepts to cotton. Doing that involves eventually becoming a collaborator with wound healing scientists and then on into the future, fast forwarding, uh, working intimately with cotton farmers and manufacturers and marketing individuals to eventually bring products to market for actually both chronic wound care as well as trauma care. Sure. And what is it about cotton? What does the newest gauzes and fabrics do that the old ones could not do? And how do you change cotton? It seems like such a basic commodity that's been around forever. Well, you know, historically, cotton has played a role in this country's history. Interestingly enough, the type of cotton we developed here is not all that new to the scene. It just appears to be, especially when we talk about the trauma care dressings. We employed a type of unbleached cotton in developing those, and that form of cotton actually played an important role in times of battle in the American Civil War. During that period, the production of cotton dressing derivatives, which were referred to as Sharpie, was a national effort. But we developed cotton dressings, fast-forwarding then to modern design principles, using de novo design that implies starting at a molecular level about what is known about the composition of the fiber. And the cotton fiber is very rich in molecular properties that lend itself to new designs for wound care. So that's sort of how we got into the design principles of some of these types of dressings. And right now, the dressing that you have developed is being used by the Marine Corps correct? Yes, they're very interested in developing this concept further with the idea of applying it to prolonged field care. And so what we developed here was a type of bleeding control dressing uh, that is now used by first responders and available for the armed forces for their use in trauma. 
and the Marine Corps, along with the Defense Health Agency, has a great interest in developing domestic base products that will serve soldiers in the battlefield. And one area is prolonged field care, and this is in austere and remote parts of the world, such as Afghanistan, where soldiers cannot be evacuated in a 24-hour framework, and you need addressing that not only staunches bleeding, controls hemorrhages, but also prevents infection. And so taking that another step forward, that's how we're working with, you know, our brother agencies, the Defense Health Agency, as well as the uh, United States Marine Corps. We're speaking with Dr. Vince Edwards. He's a research chemist at the Agricultural Research Service and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. And in order to get these qualities of infection control and greater absorption and so forth, is the gauze treated chemically, or is it somehow in the composition of the, the way the molecules line up when it's spun into this particular fabric? Right. Well, Tom, we are able to use the natural properties of cotton combined with other fibers to produce what we call procoagulant activity. And using the the principles of de novo design, we have what we call a three-point triangular approach. And this includes allowing the fiber to promote clotting through both properties of the fabric as well as you alluded to uh, components, molecular components in the fiber. And then studying what makes these properties come together as a blood contacting surface to initiate clotting. And actually, this has been studied by other scientists and other organizations for some time uh, in the context of bringing dressings for severe hemorrhage control to the battlefield. And, And that all started as a result of some of the things that happened in the Somalia crisis when the Marine Corps was involved there. And it was clear from some of the injuries uh, and trauma in in that engagement that there was needed a severe hemorrhage control type dressing. And so uh, we're not the first to work on these types of dressings. Sure. And I guess my other question is, how do you test these new developments in fabrics? Well, we employ a device called thromboelastography in our lab. And this is an instrument that's used in hospitals to measure clotting. And scientists have adapted it to measuring the what we call hemostatic properties of different types of biomaterials. And so we adapted this to measuring cotton fabric's ability to initiate clotting. And so over a period of years, we developed some insights as to how to both use this instrument and design fabrics so that we could discern different properties in the fabrics that would initiate clotting. And so that was really the instrument that we first discovered the ability of unbleached cotton to promote clotting. Interesting. Does it ever surprise you that, you know, thousands of years after, you know, the Egyptians discovered cotton and so forth, there's still more to be learned about this commodity? Oh, definitely. Yes. Cotton has many interesting properties that lend itself to new discovery. Certainly, our center is known for some of those as well. American Chemical Society Historical Landmark 
awarded our center for its discovery of flame retardant and permanent press cotton going back into the late 50s, early 60s when keen cotton was threatened by synthetic fibers. And then during World War II, a cotton textile chemist by the name of Dr. Charles Goldwaith invented stretch cotton here at our center. It's sort of a household thing. It has been for years, but before stretch cotton, rubber was used in cotton to make the stretch occur. They used to call steel the miracle metal. Maybe we should call cotton the miracle fabric. That's right. It's certainly something that we continue to uh, develop new ideas, and we are in the process of working with the Marine Corps and other organizations to develop a family of dressings that addresses not only uh, trauma care, but burn wound care and using other components of the cotton fiber, uh, something called nanocellulose uh, that we can extract from cotton is another avenue that opens up new potential applications. All right. Dr. Vince Edwards is a research chemist with the Agricultural Research Service and a finalist in this year's Service to America Metals program. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you, Tom, for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com together with all of our Sammy's interviews at slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. 
it's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, the, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came 
do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.